Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Hope you guys are doing well. We've got a new guest joining us today. I have, for the last couple months, really been admiring uh, this community that he leads in New York City, um, Good Shepherd. And a lot of you guys that have listened to the podcast may be familiar with his work. Michael Rizina is his name, um, and he leads the Good Shepherd in New York City. If you haven't tuned in to one of their digital church services, uh, magical, majest- majestic, whimsical, beautiful, amazing, fill in the blank, they are all of those. If you ever need a place that covers Steve Winwood. Uh, higher love. It's kind of, it's, that's like, let me just say, if you need to pass the bread and the wine and have higher love by Steve Winwood, this is where you go. So, um, with that being said, I reached out to him a couple weeks ago and said, Hey, man, love to have you at our table in our conversation. And he was kind enough to say yes. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Ashton, thanks for having me. You bet, man. So, um, that was a little uh, hodgepodge background and bio. Talk to me, maybe for some of our listeners that haven't crossed paths with you and your work. Uh, when you introduce yourself and that work in the world, where do you begin? Well, so I uh, live in New York City. I actually live in Lower Manhattan, um, where I am now is in my apartment building because we're in quarantine. And our apartment is two blocks from the World Trade Tower. Wow. So. We're right in the heart of Lower Manhattan, right at the intersection of uh, Tribeca, Financial District, and Battery Park City. Um, So that's where I've lived for the last nine years. Uh, I started uh, a church called Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, and uh, that rebranded recently uh, as Good Shepherd New York. Um, So I've been, I founded and lead a congregation here in Lower Manhattan uh, and have been doing that for the last uh, seven to nine years. Seven years of the church, nine years living here. Beautiful, beautiful. Where was yeah. where was life before New York? So I lived in, uh, I, I like to say I did five years in Dallas. And then <laughs> okay. uh, before that, I was in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, okay. which is where I largely grew up. But I'm originally from Chicago, and all my family is from Chicago. So that that... That's kind of like when people say, where are you from? Like my heart wants to say Chicago, but it was actually Memphis. Like all my sports allegiances are Chicago, but really Memphis, Tennessee is where I I grew up. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. So talk to me, uh, what are you guys, 60 plus days now uh, in in kind of lockdown? We are, yes. Yeah, we we crossed the 60-day mark last week. Wow. So tell us, what's it like there? I mean, is, is truly no one on the streets? I know we've we all have news access, but what's it like in the city these days? Yeah, it is. It definitely feels apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the thing that I can liken it to is uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, when about half of Manhattan completely lost power and everyone was off the grid. Uh, and I remember going, you know, like basically driving down these major thoroughfares like Houston Street or 14th Street. Canal Street and it being completely empty. And it truly felt like I was in a zombie movie. Uh, Only it's been that, but it's stretched across two months, basically. Um, And it's, it's, it's weird in Manhattan, a good amount, you know, the stories are coming out, a good amount of people who lived here who have the means to live uh, elsewhere or go elsewhere have gone elsewhere. So there are lots of, um, there are lots of uh, people who sort of left the city and uh, it is. It is a, certainly a ghost town. I ride my bike occasionally uh, along the river at night, and it is just unreal. I started taking detours into the city, and 
I've had these like beautiful experiences of the city and that I never would have dreamed mm. I could have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's, it's so sad. It's yeah. just so terribly sad. Like the thing that makes New York, New York is its energy yeah. and what everyone brings to the city and the pace of it. And nobody comes here to do life in here. You know, right. we, we come here to do life out there. And so it does, it, it, it's so tragic and there's this odd beauty to it. Mm. Talk to me about um, your leadership of Good Shepherd in these last few months. Um, I know a lot of us, I, I see similar, I see friends of mine across the country commenting on things you guys are doing. So you've, you've kind of, I don't know, it's been this uh, amazing digital church service that you guys have put out. Talk to me about kind of just what you've experienced those last 60 days with putting that together. Yeah, well, it, it is, um, it, there was a lot of pressure at the beginning to sort of like come up with a playbook, a new playbook, uh, because we didn't really know how long we were going to be uh, unable to meet in real life. And uh, so we just put our heads together. Uh, I work, one, my colleague is uh, David Gunger. Yep. And uh, we just immediately, you know, got on the phone and said like, okay, what are we going to do? Um, we happen to have a, a filmmaker uh, who is a part of our congregation and was the first person that came to our mind uh, when we thought about who would film it, and his name is Jeremy Stanley. So Jeremy uh, agreed to, you know, step in and, and help us uh, create whatever this would become. And uh, yeah, I mean, we had like a huge brainstorm right up front. And then honestly, like the way we create and work is we just like in the moment make calls. So we just showed up one day to the chapel. We had uh, musicians. We had uh, I, I had like written two or three sermons to try to get ahead of this because I didn't know when we'd be able to record again, if we would be locked down in our apartments. When we began this, uh, we weren't like in strict quarantine. Uh, we just weren't allowed to meet in groups of, I think, 50 or more at the time. And so, uh, you know, we didn't know what this was going to look like. So it was, it was truly like the creation of something under the thumb of like the pressure of a moment. Mm. Um, I can't say there was like these uh, moments of like whiteboarding and <laughs> crystal clarity and it, it was like created in the chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kudos to you guys. It's been beautiful to watch, uh, uh, mm. the creativity behind it. Um, Thank and you. the intentionality behind it. it's been amazing. So, uh, it's blessed mm. our lives for sure down here, uh, and all over. Um, beautiful. So two weeks ago you had this message, um, and that was really when I when you gave it, I was like, I need to, I want to have that dialogue with him. I want to share that message mm. with our folks, and um, I may fumble through this a bit, but but it was really <laughs> it, it was really you kind of um, peeling back, getting down to the things underneath the thing that keeps us from living a life of giving and receiving of love. I think you phrased it, the, the nexus mm-hmm. of power that keeps us from giving and receiving the help that we need. And yeah. you kind of did a nosedive into these, these hot words within our faith tradition that I think have been terribly abused over the years, um, and abused to the point where at some, sometimes they're just not even effective when they're out there and people just kind of use them almost as weaponry, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the world, mm-hmm. the flesh, the devil. Um, I wanted to just kind of chat through maybe kind of your deep dive into this and how you call them the cages, like these 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 cages that um, 
we use through our ego strategies that keep us from giving and receiving love. Um, so where do we begin? That's that's a that's a deep. This is a deep topic. Where do we begin with this conversation? <laughs> wow, you really went. Yeah, yeah, you really went into it right away. <laughs> yeah, right. We're um, just getting after it. Well, I think the the starting point. We we, pre- we preach. Uh, we follow the the lectionary, the Revised Common Lectionary. Mm-hmm. So the text for the day was uh, part of the farewell discourse in, in John's Gospel. Jesus saying goodbye to his disciples, and there's this saying where he talks about. Uh, a helper who will come. And, you know, I just got to thinking about this idea of like help. Help is here being promised. Help is portrayed as something we really deeply need. You know, and then I, I sort of reverse engineer from there and say, well, what do we need? Uh, what is what is God trying to do in the world? And what what is revealed in Jesus and is uh, being, you know, what is the invitation to us? And, you know, over my years of study and doing ministry, I've been able to just sort of boil this down to love, Mm -hmm. love uh, for God and love for neighbor, love for ourselves, uh, and even extending that to love of our enemy. Like love is the point. Love is the purpose. Love is uh, who God is, and it's uh, where we become most human. And I think when we ask the question, like, what's the help we need? I, I tie it to love and say like, okay, if the point of everything is love, we need help here. But there are things that get in the way of love. There are things that get in the way of the help that God is trying to uh, offer us, uh, ways it gets stifled. Right on. And, and I think you even mentioned in that message that when we talk about these things in between us and that love, in between participating, experiencing, walking, mm-hmm. living, breathing, moving with that love, um, yeah. these words can even sound superstitious and primitive, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. The world, the flesh, oh, the devil. Right. Um, yeah. For, and like I said before our call, I mean, we've got people from all faith traditions here. Some people uh, are curious. Some people are seekers. Some people don't really have it all lined up. Some people don't really care if it's not all lined up. I thought this was just a great dialogue to have to really give us some handlebars for these three words, the world, mm-hmm. the flesh, the devil, because... I don't know. I just think they're they're necessary. Once we name these things appropriately, then I think we can learn how to unlock these cages, uh, as as you've said. So, talk to me about yeah. the world. When when you when you talk about the world, what are we talking about? Yeah, I think maybe before I jump into the world, let me zoom back for a second sure. and just say mm-hmm. I really resonate with what you're saying. This idea that a word can um, through its usage, become have a have a function that it didn't really originally have, yep. but it, then it gains this momentum and it can become hurtful. It can become damaging, depending on how it's used and how it's experienced. And I think uh, these world uh, words like the world and the flesh and the devil, each of them have really long histories of usage that um, are really dark and uh, and difficult. And so. I think that's why at the beginning, you know, I'm in New York, so it's, I'm very attuned to that sensibility of mm-hmm. skepticism and pain connected to religion or, uh, you know, a sense that religion or uh, Jesus or Christianity or anything organized like this is, is bad news for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think I, I feel the onus, I feel the responsibility to sort of recover these words um, and to ask the question, like, what, 
how did they function? How did they work? And what would it look like to build a bridge to now? Um, and I, I totally agree with you. Like, I think people use these words in very irresponsible ways sometimes because, you know, they've just been trained to read the Bible at face value. Mm-hmm. And, and when you read the Bible at face value, quote unquote, you're just reading your experience into it. So you're just taking mm-hmm. all your expectations and all the um, experiences you've had and you are connecting the dots. So I just see a copy and paste relationship with a lot of these words, yeah. uh, the world. And we assume we know what they mean. Uh, but it, they're usually more informed by like, you know, pop culture or even our, our own little church experiences as narrow as that might be. And um, there is real, there's a real gift to going back and doing the work of saying, well, how did this originate? Where did these words come from and how did they function? And that's what I was trying to get at in the heart of this message. Well um, said, well said. Yeah. So I really was inspired by Walter Wink in this work, by the way. Uh, Walter Wink wrote a, a award-winning trilogy uh, called Naming the Powers, I think is book one, Engaging the Powers is book two, and then I believe it's Transforming the Powers is mm-hmm. book three. And I read this probably right when I moved to New York, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is everything I need <laughs> to be able to to engage these this language in this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it opened doors I never could have imagined uh, for these words. So um, so a big shout out to Walter Wink and a huge recommendation on my part to go out and check his work out. Right on. Um, yeah, but the world. So the world is, um, I talk about it as the system, uh, the systems that we participate, the sort of like meta systems uh, that make our lives what they are. They give our lives shape. Uh, so I would include within that, um, you know, the geopolitical uh systems and processes that we have, uh, our world economy. Um, I would include systems, smaller scale systems, but still pretty large, like our, um, our justice system um, uh, or our education system. These, these are sort of larger than the individual. They're larger often than one local community. They are uh, beyond us. And so we look for language to, to talk about the power that they have in our lives, the influence they have. And world was the way that our gospelers, especially John, talked about those powers, um, those systems at work in the world. I think you wrote all the ways we attempt to organize, all the ways we try to control mm. things. Yeah, and, and but scaled large, right? Yeah. So like yeah. the think dominant systems yeah. um, that, that do really impact the way we think. And the, the weird thing about the world, and probably one of the beautiful things about what the gospel does with the world is it's, it's trying to get us to see something that's hard to see. Hmm. Um, and it's trying to draw a line and say, this is happening around us. And what would it look like to name it? And then to be able to like detach from it. Cause if you don't see yeah. something and you yeah. can't name it, then it, it has this power over you that you don't even realize. Um, and what I see the gospelers doing is basically saying, putting their finger on these dynamics. And in their context, of course, it couldn't be, unrelated or disconnected from the Roman Empire. So you have this, this, this dominant force of the Roman Empire, you know, weighing in on their lives. You might have the religious systems rooted, especially in Jerusalem, rooted in the temple and all of the, the hierarchy that comes around that and the protocols and the purity systems and the imagination, like all of that is, falls under that banner of the world. Yeah, yeah. And I love, uh, that's useful. This, this rings true with me. Once you can name it, that is the moment where you can at least attempt 
to detach. You can see mm-hmm. it. You can call it what it is. Where uh, once the aha is there, uh, mm-hmm. once the, oh, there's that, there that is again, what's the invitation for love as we, as we interact with this first cage that we're going to call the world? Yeah. And, and I would just add, like, there is a, a value statement being made about this, this uh, reality in, mm-hmm. in the Gospels, mm-hmm. right? They're saying, in general, like, the world operates on a premise of life apart from God. It doesn't take love for granted. Hmm. Scarcity so, wins. Right, yeah. And this is where, you know, I draw a lot on the work of, like, Walt, Walt Brueggemann, Hebrew Bible scholar, who, who basically says, you know, empire starts from a place of scarcity. It starts uh, from a place of fear. And uh, it, it, it hoards around the, the, the fear and it preys on those fears. And so it's, it's ways that we organize and structure um, on the assumption that we've got to compete. And if we don't compete, then we're not going to get what we want. Um, and we're not going to secure what we really think we need in this life. Hmm. Um, so in that way, these, these systems do violence to or are hostile to the God who is love, who is generous and overflowing and gives, gives of God's self. Uh, those are... Those are important things, I think, to, to name. We're not just talking about something necessarily neutral. They're actually, uh, it's used in a pejorative way. Hmm. This is not good. Yeah. This is dehumanizing us. Well said. Um, beautiful. Yes. We can say love a lot on here. Just keep going. That's, a, that's, <laughs> our, that's our anthem. That's our anthem here. Yeah. Good room, beautiful. Um, flesh. Hmm. Now, I, I think, um, especially growing up, uh, this this was such a word that got so much blame, right? Like I think I think mm. Paul was trying to get at something, but chose flesh, which equaled bodies bad, physicality's mm-hmm. bad. Um, yep. And I think probably the all oh, you know the folks I've studied, and same for you, probably flesh was better suited under what we would refer to as ego. Um, I'm gonna let you run with this for a bit on. Yeah, what we're yeah, getting yeah. at when we talk about flesh. Well, I think like the term the world, there's sort of a unintended consequence to the word choice uh, that, that, that uh, comes to fruition. So with the world, you know, I think we grew up, or I, I'll speak for myself. I grew up in a, a religious context where the world was used to demonize a lot of like realities, you know, but, but in a way that uh, where the, the response was not to engage, but it was to disengage. It wasn't mm. to get in there and, um, and work for renewal or reform or transformation. It was instead this sort of like signal or siren of fear to make us recoil and isolate and sort of huddle up in our little ark, you know, like our little holy huddle to be safe against this yeah. evil dark world. And uh, what's lost in that is, of course, the, the, the ability and the power of, uh, of humanity with God's help to engage and transform the world in which we live and to, to live out the prayer of Jesus, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so the, in the same way, the flesh, I think, had that sort of shadow side where uh, people associated it with the body. And so uh, the effect that it had in people's lives was a very um, uh, hyper-spiritual way of thinking about the world, of thinking about God and and their own lives, and uh, looking at the body as something that's bad or uh, that's corrupt uh, or that is gets in the way of true spirituality rather than 
the only vehicle we have, yeah. you know, yeah. for our spirituality. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of like negative stuff that comes with that. And I, I think it's unfortunate in a sense that that term was used because of uh, how easily it gets twisted into or conflated with our body. But I, I started to ask the question, what's behind this metaphor? Why would Paul, uh, who, who generally is the one who, who uh, put it into usage the way that we know and the way that we use it, uh, why, why did, did Paul, what was Paul doing with this? Um, and I can remember I was sitting in a coffee shop down here in lower Manhattan, and I was actually reading, um, uh, learning from a, a New Testament scholar, uh, Robert Jewett, who wrote this, he's, he's a Romans scholar. And he had this, oh my goodness, I can remember where I was. <laughs> I literally, I, I took my headphones out, I set my stuff down on the table, and I just leaned back in my chair. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this opens up so many doors yeah. for me. Yeah. Um, and this is what he said. He said, Paul's idea of the flesh, uh, this is a quote, Paul's idea of the flesh arose in controversy over the status of Jewish law with regard to circumcised flesh, but it now functions as a universal symbol for the crippling competition for honor that distorts every human endeavor, end quote. The crippling competition for honor. Yeah, this crippling competition for honor that distorts every human endeavor. So in this case, it's, you know, it's connected around the Jewish law and this practice of circumcision. And, and I think, you know, w- when we expand that out, we think, oh my goodness, what are these... What is this um, quest for honor, this like status grabbing, mm. this status acquisition um, in us that is trying to get become safe or become uh, valuable or become worthy? And uh, and I just thought, wow, that that resonates with this yeah. city. You know, this city is a city of status grabbing. It's a city of crippling competition. You know, and there is a quest for honor at some level there. And so I started to reverse engineer from that basic idea of universalizing it. it this isn't just a, you know, about uh, drives of the body or desires of the body. Uh, this is um, a, a thing in us that, that doesn't take love for granted and therefore tries to, to control and grab at whatever will fill that void. Um, and, I, and I sort of connected it to an idea. I remember Jamie Smith, um, who's written a lot about desire, uh, he he, I was in a talking with him actually when I lived in Dallas. Uh, we were having a drink, and I remember talking to him about the flesh because it's you know I used to study Greek and this was my first word study. I have this little mini obsession with the word, <laughs> and I was I was asking him like what is what's the deal with flesh and how do you connect that with uh, desire? And he basically said you know I see it as like this accumulate the, the way our habits accumulate you know and our habits are are, are rooted in our bodies. And our bodies are the windows to our imaginations. And the way I would describe flesh, he said, is our habits sort of uh, accumulating in the wrong direction, Hmm. like with the wrong end game, the wrong vision of human flourishing, driving it. Um, And I and I thought, oh, that's marvelous because that that's exactly what Paul's doing. Paul is he's not getting us to think um, of life apart from our body. He's trying to show us how our habits and the you know the forces of the world and all those things around us how they get into us through our bodies and, and that, you know, our experience is rooted in our body and so much, so much of modern psychology and, uh, and sociology is teaching us that. Um, even like the way that, you know, the book, the body keeps the score, the way we process our trauma is often in our body. And, uh, unfortunately this word was a word that disconnected us from our body because we saw it as bad or whatever. 
And Paul's just saying, no, this stuff takes root there, but this is also the arena of transformation, hmm. um, which is why Paul can use the term in a, in a wide variety of ways. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he uses the term flesh in a very neutral way sometimes. Um, so I, I, I try to get at the heart of this. I say it's a lot like ego. Uh, ego is a better word. It's what we moderns uh, would probably say when we're talking about this idea Paul's trying to get at. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Well said. Um, some notes I took when you were kind of walking through this in the sermon was that here love is never enough. Love can't be mm. counted on. Love is always seen as conditional. Um, mm. And you kind of had this quick like riff mid-sermon and I was like, did he just go all nine numbers on the Enneagram? Because I think you were like, because <laughs> you were like, yeah, this is the place where, uh, you know, your love is conditional through maybe your need to be perfect or maybe your need to be needed or maybe your need to be admired. Yeah. And I was like, I think he just yeah. danced, I think he just danced around the Enneagram on that one. I did. I did. I definitely <laughs> did. You know, I just awesome. don't like. I don't like using the tool in a in a way that draws attention to it yeah. that much. I just I think there's a lot of enneagram talk these these days by people you. who don't really know a lot about it. So I definitely was channeling my buddy Chris Hewitts yep. on this. We um, had him on two weeks ago. And oh, did you really? Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the idea of like the the ways that we go about getting love when we're afraid that we're not going to receive it, yep. you know, or we're afraid we're not we we um, need to earn it or we've got to be worthy of it. Mm-hmm. So. And I just, I talk about the ego as like, that's the starting point yep. of the ego. Yep. Um, and it's not bad. I don't want to demonize ego because we actually, ego does protect us mm-hmm. uh, from threatening things in the world. And if you don't create an ego, I, don't, I think it's hard to do the kind of work that Jesus calls us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it, how can you give up, deny a self that you never <laughs> allowed to emerge, right? Yeah. And I think it's it's definitely true. Some people are like live in contexts where they aren't allowed to create an ego. Hmm. Um, and and it does stunt their their growth and their formation. There is this in, in need for all of us to differentiate, to sort of become become our own in order to then unpack that yeah. and and get to the heart of what's underneath our, our lives. Yeah. Unless yeah. the grain of wheat dies. It remains yeah, just a grain of right. wheat. Yeah. Exactly. Um, right. Who would, this is this is off topic, well, not off topic, off script. Who would you uh, maybe invite some of our listeners to study in the realm of ego? Um, mm. Parker J. Palmer has been helpful for me in this. Uh, of course, Father yeah. Richard Rohr. Um, anyone that you may say, here's some, here's some good voices to check out? Yeah. So, I mean, there's definitely like, I mean, I could go, you know, the, the fathers of modern psychology, which I think are helpful. Um, and there's a lot of talk right now about whether or not, um, like ego side is what they call it, whether ego side is good or bad in Hmm. psychology. Hmm. And even from like Descartes, you know, who started with, I think therefore I am and started speaking about identity and ego in a new way. Um, from that point on, we've, we've had this ongoing conversation about is the ego good or is it bad? Is it helpful or is it, you know, hurtful? Does it get us to where we want to go or does it get in the way of where we want to go? And so I think it's important, you know, for people to know, like, that's a real debate going on in psychology. And I think the, the stance I take is rooted in from, you know, led by people like Father Richard Rohr and, and, and others 
who mine the mystic tradition. Yeah. Um, yes. And and are able to say, okay, from the experience of the mystics, there really is something underneath this structure, this egoic structure. There really is something at the bottom of this that we need to tap into in order to be healed, you know, to address our pains and our fears. And um, it's from that well that I draw from. So I, I do assume, you know, like, and this is how I integrate the teaching of Jesus. Like, I do assume that part of our ego needs to die. Uh, but I also grant that it, it needs to emerge in the first place. Yep. Um, it is necessary. It's inevitable. There's no way we can get around it. We would just will. We have these sensitivities in life. And I, I like to talk about, my friend Ian Cron says, you know, he likes to talk about original sin as original vulnerability. Mm. And I like to talk about sin as mismanaged vulnerabilities. Mm. Um, and if we could just learn to manage our vulnerabilities in a way that takes love for granted, we really can, that's where we experience healing and that's where we experience our true selves. And that's where we start to, to get in the Jesus rhythm of, of loving God and loving neighbor and loving ourselves. Um, so, so I would say I'm right with you. I mean, those are, those are some of my influences uh, as well. And, and honestly, Chris is great, man. Chris is, yep. is uh, he's a bit of a ninja right now yeah, when it comes is. to Enneagram world. Yeah. I need to put him on half speed when he gets going. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I love him. But, uh, yes, he's been a dear friend of ours here uh, at the podcast. Um, right on. Beautiful. And then while we're on the topic of flesh, the Word became flesh and dwelled among hmm. us. Um, right. This can't be bad, right? Um, yeah. This can't be... Uh, if the divine showed up in such yes. enfleshment... Um, you got to take that to a pretty wonky place to turn that into a negative. It is. Yes. And, and I think like that's where uh, Robert Jewett really helped me out because he connects uh, the incarnation Mm -hmm. to Paul's idea of the flesh. And he gives it that sort of Jesus connection that is so important. And he basically says that Jesus, uh, he exhibits something Mm -hmm. and, and also proclaims something, this sort of non-competitive lifestyle in the face of all the ways we compete in, you know, like he says, that crippling competition for honor. Um, and that Jesus had this awareness of God's love that filled every need for honor, and it sort of set him free uh, for generous love that basically provoked the opposition that led to his death. Yeah. So this idea of Jesus is the one who cracks the code. Jesus is the one who, uh, and I like the, the story of the wilderness, the temptation, where Jesus has this audiovisual experience of, of divine love, and then immediately faces these tempting voices. And it's these voices which in every single temptation begins with, if you are the, 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 the son, right? If you are the son of God. And he's just had this experience of that he is the beloved son of God who God finds pleasure in. And now there's an undermining contingency in all these, right? If you're this, if you're that, if you're this, prove it, hmm. right? Demonstrate it earn it, go out there and secure it. And Jesus has to resist all those ways we grab at control and instead has to continually come back to this love is a gift. It can only be received. You know, it can only come through that open door of vulnerability. And if I, if I try to create some facade over that vulnerability, I'm going to cut myself off from love. And where that takes Jesus is to the cross, the place of ultimate vulnerability, um, because he's not willing to guard and to hedge the way that we are accustomed to surviving in the world. 
And so I think the message of Jesus is, you know, what often will help us survive will, will not get us to thriving. Hmm. And the gospel sort of gets us to that place where, and invites us to that place where we can thrive as human beings in the way of love. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Recently, someone, I can't even remember who it was, maybe it was at the living school, someone said, at some point you realize it's not so much the survival of the fittest, it's actually the survival of the nurtured. Um, mm. I was like, yeah, that's a good word. Um, we that is good, yeah. We can't protect. Uh, we e- even, even detaching from that which is most true about us, being a reflection mm-hmm. of the divine love, still has to be let go of. Um, yeah. 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 And I, and what's interesting to me, and this is like where I'm at now in my processing of this, but I, I still think you can't completely divorce yourself from your ego. And I think that's right. what some of the debate is in psychology yeah. is like, how can you ever completely detach or completely kill this, this structure? Right. And I think that the point is, and Palmer talks about this, this idea of, um, this idea of creating space, right. Between the stimulus and the response. Yeah. Um, all the stimulus of our lives, being able to step back and say, all right, if I can just create some space, then I can actually pivot. I can make choices. I can, I can alter what's happening in my life and how I'm, I'm engaging. Um, but if, if I don't see that, and if I don't have that space, then I'm just a slave to, you know, the, the impulses and I'm a slave to the, the stimuli of my life. And that is, is what Jesus is inviting us out of, I think. And it's, it's the belief I hold to that, um, we can find our way outside of these cages because our egos can feel like cages. They survive, but then it's like, I'm, now I can't transcend it. Yep. Yep. And the, the spirituality of Jesus, the spirituality of the mystics, helps us get to that place, I think, of detaching from the ego. Uh, not completely destroying it, but like detaching so that it doesn't have power over us and control us, and instead we can use it in the service of love. Yeah, good word. Yeah, I think Rourke says ego is the container, not the contents. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, you got to have one to detach from it, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> so. That guy's good. You should have him on this podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he's helped a lot of us, has he not? Mm. Um, so, okay, right on. Well, then let's let's touch the, the hottest word of all of these. Okay. Um mm-hmm being the devil and uh where do we start because even just say like i'm even uncomfortable saying it because of how i just know immediately there is as you said this image of a cosmic boogeyman um yeah talk right. to talk, talk to me about um when, when Who you thwarts your train schedules all the time <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. uh the devil did it i'm always uh the, the thing that got me, and it was in my notes here, was when you said, um, one great way to understand what we're getting at here is all of the messages that make us feel small and unsafe. Um, hmm. Hold my hand on getting to understand this, this word that is packed with energy, packed with um, all sorts of preconceived notions, it quite honestly doesn't even feel that useful 99 times mm-hmm. out of 100. And yeah. I thought maybe you could shed some light on this for us. Absolutely. Yeah. So I feel much the same way. Uh was almost allergic to the word, even as a minister for <laughs> yeah. years. Didn't want to use it. Felt weird using it because the ways that I heard people use it was, it, it just created weird power dynamics. You know, like the, 
there seem to be um, there seem to be these unwritten rules about how you engage the devil or Satan or uh, you know the 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 demons, and they were rules that I didn't really see in Scripture. Um, they were they were like elucidated somehow, and and like the people who ran in those circles, they knew how it all worked, and there was like a weird you know people were either anointed or not anointed, or they had power and authority or they didn't, and there's just like these weird power dynamics. And so I sort of shrank back from that and was looking for other ways um, to engage it and to talk about it. And this is where Wink, to me, Walter Wink, shines. Because uh, he pointed out something, I read one of his essays, and that led me to his work. But in the essay, he basically says, look, search the Hebrew Bible. Like, just search it and look for where is where is this figure we call the devil or the Satan? Um and I, before I really could answer that question, I think my assumption would have been, well, he's all over, right? Um, and you think of these iconic moments like the story of Job, uh, or um, even like we think of the garden, you know, the yep. temptation of Adam and Eve, yep. and we put, we put uh, the Satan or, or, or the devil in that moment. But, you know, as, as a term, the Satan, which means adversary, uh, it only shows up, I think, four times in the Hebrew Bible. The entire Hebrew Bible, which just completely drowns the New Testament in terms of volume, right? And it's there four times. And, and even the language of demons is, is just as scarce. You know, and depending on the translation, it, it almost doesn't show up at all. Hmm. And so he raises the question that I had never entertained, which is why is there so little mention of this figure that we call the devil in the Hebrew Bible? But then when we come to the point of the gospel stories, they're literally everywhere, like all over the place. Demons everywhere, people aware of them, speaking to them, oppressed by them. I mean, what is going on with this? And um, the, the reality that I started to notice is that there was an explosion of this language in the intertestamental period. Hmm. And Wink does an amazing job of saying, like, what was behind that? You know, where did that come from? Why did people start using this language, talking in this way? And the amazing connection he makes that, again, I had one of those like coffee shop moments <laughs> where I'm like, this changes everything. Uh, he says that you can essentially attribute this to Hellenism. The, this, this, um, uh, the, the force of empire under you know, Alexander the Great and the way that all of a sudden these small tribes and towns and people groups were connected like never before through language and through art and culture. And there was this beautiful gift of Hellenism, but there was also this damaging side. There, was, there were ways in which people's lives, as they knew them, were torn apart. Ways in which people's identities were called into question, undermined, and people either felt like they had to assimilate and they lost an important part of who they were, or they literally had violence, you know, like come through their town, losing people, damaging people, and, and they were left with the trauma of that. And so the demonic became a way to talk about these forces, which almost like we, you know, John uses the word world, similar to that, hmm. but in a more personal way. Copy. Like how do these, the, the systems of the world damage me? And then how does that haunt me? How does that hurt me? How does that stay with me? And then how does that produce pain in other people's lives? And this is where you see that language popping hmm. up all over the place. And so... What Walter Wink says is like, this is a very sophisticated way of talking about our experience of pain and violence and damage and trauma. 
and uh, the lingering effects of that in our lives and the way that it has a ripple effect in our communities. Like, this is a very sophisticated way to name that reality and uh, to be able to navigate it and work with it. And he basically says, we don't have an equivalent today. We don't have a very helpful equivalent to talk about the spirituality of these systems, the spirituality of these institutions. You know, what is the spirituality and the imagination that makes our justice system possible? Like, what is mm-hmm. the spirituality and, and, and um, way of imagining the world that makes our world economy possible, right? That makes it even conceivable and, and everyone says, okay, I'll go with that. That, that. It's that spirituality that's at the heart of our institutions that the Bible's trying to get at when it talks about, I think, the, the, the principalities and the powers mm-hmm. and demons and, and the Satan. And so... Um, do we need a face? Is that, is that like, do we need a name, a face? Is it just not too, ab- mm. too, too abstract without the name? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, that's, it, to me, a promising line of thinking, um, because it is so personal, mm-hmm. you know? And for something that is so personal, and yet you're trying to transcend, like, even Paul's nice little ninja move of saying, uh, you know, our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and the powers. And that's Paul trying to get, take that instinct in humanity to scapegoat, right? Mm. To find an enemy, mm. to, to like go against that enemy and to say like, no, like let's lift the target off of, of a human being here and let's just name that there, we are all impacted and influenced by a, something in the air, mm. right? By a spirituality and we're all victims of it. So even your oppressor is a victim of this. And so let's not like go back at the oppressor. The only way to peace is to be able to acknowledge there really is something beyond us that's influencing and impacting us. And it's not any one person's fault. And I, I think that's that sense that when you talk about the demonic and you talk about the satanic, it's that sense of what's beyond us, any one person, any one group, a force at work that's damaging our lives. Hmm. And that became super helpful. And now you could call like Wall Street evil, but it, it sort of doesn't have, it doesn't have the, the ring to it that, that it would have if you were like, you know, Wall Street it was, is operating in a way that's satanic. And now we have this, all these images and this legacy. And you could say it's bad, but it's also very rich and powerful. It's just been used in bad ways. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked about the Satan and the demonic in terms of these little personal things of like, um, uh, you know, like uh, in, in my tradition, it would be like, hey, if you made a bad decision or you you know, had sex before marriage. We had these things, oh, that's the demons at work. And we didn't have eyes to see the demons at work beyond that. Like, what's that system, mm-hmm. you know? What's the system underneath that that's supporting these behaviors? So, um, so yeah, and I, I, you know, those messages that I talk about in the sermon are really rooted in Jesus' temptation. The tempting voice that tries to make you feel small or insufficient, it starts with the premise of a deficit. And that, to me, is, is the heart of the satanic. It comes against us. And it comes against the ways of God and the purposes of God, which is love, by saying, no, nah, love isn't real. Love can't be counted on. Uh, you're, you're naive and you are unrealistic if you think love is going to win. And it's those messages that get so much traction in our, in our minds that we really do need an, a way to name it and to differentiate ourselves from it and to say, no, I need to be shielded against this. Well said, well said. Um, yeah, the constant, you're not worthy of love, as you said. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or even the, the idea of the, the, you know, the armor of God, which is 
again, kind of a battle metaphor, yep. and that can be yep. used in hurtful ways yep. Yep. and has been. But there really is something brilliant about the nonviolent nature of that armor. Hmm. And uh, even that idea of the shield of faith. And, you know, I equate faith to the open heart, and there's something about that open heart which does quench those fiery darts, yeah. you know, those little yeah. things that come at us. Um, there's something about that shield of trust when you're willing to put yourself out there and open your heart to, to your neighbor, to yourself, to God, that, that has this like protective effect. And it's so counterintuitive because we think we got to create the wall. We've got to create the protection. And God's constantly trying to tear down the walls we create mm -hmm. and help us to rely on the, the one thing that makes us human, which is our vulnerability. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the, one, of the, one of the main things that makes us human is our vulnerability and we don't trust it. So you, you, you shared something there that was beautiful. Faith to you is the open heart. Yes. Expound on that. Well, for me, faith so much when I thought of it growing up was whatever I agreed with, you mm -hmm. know, and there was a sense in which faith was something that, you know, a set of ideas that were to be agreed with. And if you same. agreed with them, yeah, or, or, you know, a code of some kind. And it's yeah. like, if you agree with this, then you have faith. But if you disagree with it, then you have doubt and you, you don't have faith. And I started to uh, go to a dark place myself because I was like, well, you know, sometimes I'm not sure I agree with this or wait, can I even question this? Like, what, what, what is faith if it's just agreement, you know? And, um, and that's where, like, partly studying the history of the church and the way people have experienced God and talked about spirituality that informed then my reading of the Bible. And then all of a sudden seeing in the Bible faith as relational to the core, you know, faith as... Um, the ability to trust, the ability to open up and trust. And so I like the metaphor of open close to talk about trust because it, it, it yeah. seems to capture yeah. what's at the heart of the act of trust. And so when I talk about an open heart and I talk about faith in our community, I say like, honestly, what you think about things and what you agree with or don't agree with is not the most important part of your spirituality. The most important, important part is, is your heart open right now? Is it open to this moment? Is it open to God? Is it open to me? Is it open to you? Is it, is it open? And if you have the open heart um, that says, come what may, I receive this moment, I receive it as a gift, like that's where the magic happens. That's where we experience love. That's where we're open to God's love. That's where we're open to each other and the connections are forged. That is the heart of healthy humanity and healthy spirituality is that open heart. And so I think I love that metaphor, and that's why I, I, I constantly come back back to it over and over when I think of faith. It's beautiful. So helpful. Um, dialed in, 100% agree. So mm. perhaps then these three words are the corporate, collective, specific, individual ways that we can close our hearts, that we can shut our eyes. Um, yeah. That... that keep the cage, that keep love caged. Um, and I'm chasing words here to say it right, but that, 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 was, <laughs> yeah. that was helpful for me to hear you just say, no, this is about an open heart. These three yeah. words um, are very sly ways the heart closes. There it is. That's what we're getting at mm. here. That's good. Um, well said. 
Yeah, I think that's well it. Said. I think that's it. I knew I had to talk this out with you. I couldn't just get it. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't just get it on YouTube. I um, think it was worth the investment. That's good. <laughs> I'm going to steal it. There, there we are. Um, and so you will wrap up here. You, you talk about okay. the imagination of love, like the mm. the possibility to yeah. join, participate, walk in. Uh, listen, I'm, I got a lot of Enneagram 4 in me, so when you start talking about the dance mm. of love, I'm, I'm all in. Um, yeah. Talk, talk to me about um, love being this thing that unlocks all of it, that, that, that opens the heart, that opens the eyes, that is this great yeah. gift that we can all live, move, and have our being in. Well, if the, you need a counter-imagination. So it's not enough just to name what stands against you. You also need to, to, to have this connection to and be able to name and understand like what is for you mm-hmm. and what is, what is, what's at work around you and in you um, to, to produce goodness and to produce love you know, or beauty. So this idea of, of um, the, the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the, tr- and the devil I think is, is met by, in our imaginations powerfully, this idea of the holy trinity mm-hmm. and God as trinity and God as, as a being who knows love uh, forever and always. And, you know, the starting point, rather, and we need these starting points to, to sort of hang our hats on, if the ego and the world and the, um, and the messages that we get, you know, from these forces that are infringe on our lives that we would call the devil or Satan or the demonic, like if all of that is saying you can't count on love, you can't count on it. It's not there when you need it. It's not to be trusted. It's not to be banked on. Uh, you, if, if, if you could, you certainly don't have what it takes to have that and to, to, to be the recipient of it. But all of that needs a counterweight and a countermeasure. And that's where this idea uh, of the Trinity is powerful, but also the stories where the Trinity shows up. And to me, there's no more powerful story than like the story of, of, um, of the baptism of Jesus. Uh, because you have here this, this again, audiovisual experience. You have the, the, the father announcing, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. You have the son emerging from the water mm. with this open heart, you know, and there's a sense of, of freshness and there's a sense of buoyancy. And then you have the spirit hovering, uh, descending. And it's that movement, which is, you know, I liken to a dance. And even the, the early theology of the trinity rooted in that term yeah. perichoresis yep circle um, dance of love that's right it's a yeah. circle of love and so i imagine you know, my my colleague david gunger is also a, a musician he has this song he wrote called see the love and the the chorus is i want to see the love i want to see the love all around you all around you and i want to know that that love is all around you mm. um because we 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 generally operate again from that sense of a vacuum of love mm. And what we need is to, to get our imaginations in line with what's revealed in the life of Jesus, which is love is all around us. It's at the heart of the universe. It's at the, the center of our lives. In fact, you know, the, the Thomas Merton put it like this, uh, this void, this empty place in the center of our souls, like a pin dot. Yeah. That, that is there and no one can take it away. No one can threaten it. And it's the only, and you can't control it, but it's the gift of love right there at the core of your being. And it's that we need to like learn how to see and access and believe and trust. Hmm. That's that's how that's how I understand this this dance of love connected hmm. to, to Christ. And the more we can open 
the more we can experience it. Right, right. But it does feel terrifying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it definitely takes, there's a sense of risk yeah. involved in it. It should. Right? It's as wide as the universe. It should yeah. kind of trip us out a little bit. Um, mm. So I ask everyone this. Um, what's currently keeping you curious? Wow, what is keeping me curious? I think right now it's a very personal, a very personal thing. Um, I could give you like intellectual <laughs> journeys, you know, but I'll just say uh, this moment of transition in, in the world mm. with this pandemic has been, it's a transition for all of us. It's that in-between space and these liminal moments are places of processing. And so I think I've just been delighted. In fact, you know, I, I, I do this uh, group, I've been doing this group therapy thing uh, during, during the uh, pandemic. And I've been so encouraged and uh, I feel like parts of me are coming to life in ways that uh, required this moment in some ways. I mean, mm. it, it, they prompted, you know, they gave me the energy, the impetus to like do some work that I've been wanting to do, but I just, I didn't, for some reason, didn't have the energy for it. And now I'm stuck in my apartment and uh, <laughs> I'm still doing my job, but now it's like, the intensity and the frequency of some of these interactions that call into question like things I want to process, I can't uh, escape them. And yeah. so there's there's a kind of gift. And so I think that's prompting curiosity in me right now is um, this this dive inward to understand where um, what's at the heart of my pain and what's at the heart of the ways that I'm, I'm managing my pain right now. Um, so I know that, I don't know if that's what you're looking for, but perfect. That's, when We've you all say had curiosity, to look at it. We've all had to look yeah. straight into it. When you say curiosity, that's where I am right now. Perfect. I love it. Um, well, man, high five through the microphone. Super grateful. <laughs> super grateful for you and your work. I hope our Thank paths you. cross in the very near future. Um, next time I'm in New York and we've got this season of life behind us, I'm going to come join you guys yep. and see what you're up to. Sounds great, Ashton. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Super grateful for uh, you coming on today, and thanks so much for your generosity. You bet. Peace be with you.